Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Remember when you were anxiously awaiting your report card? It's very likely that these events were met with mixed emotions as you awaited the results. But when it comes to grading the health of the Arctic, we should be nervous. This region of the world is seeing some of the worst impacts from climate change. And today, we're chatting with one of the report card's authors, climate and atmospheric scientist expert, Zachary Labe, who specializes in Arctic ice conditions. He'll reveal some of the alarming results from the latest report, and we'll discuss what the declining health of the Arctic means for the future of our planet. Zach, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you for having me. So are you a weather geek? How did you become a weather or climate geek? That's always the question I like to start off with with our guests. I am a weather geek. I was interested in weather going back to elementary school. And I think a lot of people, they often have a storm that really, you know, started off this nerdiness. Um, I don't, I, I just, I don't know. I've always been crazy about the weather. Um, I went to school for meteorology and thought I was going to go into forecasting and then landed in more climate research, but definitely a weather geek. Yeah, and I want to make sure, am I pronouncing your last name correctly, Labe? Great. Yep. So let me give you a little bit of Zach's background before we dive into this very fascinating conversation. He received his PhD uh, from the Department of Earth System Sciences at the University of California, uh, Irvine. Uh, he also has a bachelor's degree in atmospheric sciences from Cornell University, and he did an honors thesis on community earth system modeling of large ensemble, uh, community earth system model large ensembles, I should say. And he was the student uh, pres chapter president of the AMS at Cornell as well. So happy to see that you were very much engaged in, in AMS. And I, I just want to put this right out there. If you're not following Zach in Twitter right now, make sure you do. He's one of the best follows out there for information on weather and climate and what's going on in the Arctic and so forth. I'll, I'll make sure we get his uh, Twitter handle a bit later in the podcast, but he's, he's one of my favorite people to follow. Yeah. So you, you, and one of the things that you tweet quite a bit about is the Arctic and we're talking today about the Arctic report card. So just give the listeners sort of a, a 101 of what this Arctic report card is. The Arctic Report Card is a unique opportunity. It's sort of this chance, you know, once a year that, you know, over a hundred scientists come together to really document and observe what's going on in our Arctic. And we don't cover, you know, just the basics like sea ice and temperature, but there's all sorts of observations included in the Arctic um, Report Card. Things like they're tracking whale migrations and changes in tundra, which is like vegetation in the Arctic. Um, they're also using different types of observations. So some coming from research excursions into the Arctic, others coming from climate models. So it's really this chance to document these dramatic changes in the Arctic coming from all different perspectives. Yeah, and I, I, I'm, we're going to dive all into it uh, in this podcast, but I, I wanted to at least 
get the sort of operating principle out there for the listeners so that they can know what this RJ report card is. Because there's some alarming grades in this report card this year, if you will, uh, on, on our climate and Arctic system. But before we get that, I want to rewind a little bit and go back to some of your, your early work, because I know you did this community earth system model large ensemble project called LENS. Uh, what is that? And just tell us about how that fit into your earlier work as an undergrad. Yeah. So again, I mentioned earlier, I was interested in weather forecasting and about halfway through college is that time you want to try lots of different things to see what you like. And one opportunity I had was I reached out to a professor about doing research, particularly climate research. And this project with the community earth system model, which is a climate model, it really was my chance to dive into climate research and climate change and variability. And it's this, the community earth system model is this unique project where they actually take a climate model and they run it 40 different times. And all they do is they change the very, the initial conditions very so slightly. And what that allows us to do is both consider climate change and climate variability because we know there is natural variability in the climate system. We really, we know, we know that? Are you kidding me? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm being facetious here because I know as a climate scientist, I'm sure you get that too. But people, well, you know the climate changes and, and varies naturally. Of course we know that as climate science. Continue. Yeah, exa right, exactly. Um, so the project was this, you know, we dived into understanding particularly spring. So not related to Arctic work in, for my undergrad, but it was how does, what's the changes in the timing of spring in the United States and how is that going to affect vegetation? Like how is it going to flowers? Are they going to bloom earlier or later? Um, they're going to bloom earlier because of the warming. But anyway, it, the community earth system models is really awesome publicly available climate model data set that allows us to consider the climate system, both anthropogenic human caused climate change and this, this climate variability. So, so even as an undergraduate, you were working in climate and climate change, but in your doctoral work, you started to shift more into Arctic and perhaps relationships between changes in the Arctic and circulation in the mid-latitudes. Now, the mid-latitudes are those latitudes where most of us live in the United States, perhaps, unless you live in South Florida. Um, so tell us a little bit about the transition to that work. So again, always interested in the weather. And I grew up on the East Coast um, in Pennsylvania, where you get in the winter, lots of nor'easters. And for people interested in winter weather forecasting, they, they look at these things called teleconnections, these century climate patterns in other regions that affect our weather. And I was interested in these connections to try to predict winter storms. And one of them is this thing called the North Atlantic Oscillation. So it's just this climate pattern up, you know, in the higher latitudes. And anyway, that sort of got my interest in, you know, as I'm looking for grad school topics for my thesis, I'm interested in how are these sort of climate patterns, these teleconnections in other regions, how are they going to change uh, because of climate change and then affect weather forecasts? So somehow I got into then well, does the Arctic affect these types of patterns, these climate patterns? Because we're no, we know that the climate change in the Arctic is happening faster than any other region in the planet. So does this rapid change affect you know, these climate patterns, and which then could affect weather in the mid-latitudes, like in North America? And I guess that was sort of my transition from my really early interest in weather into how are these going to change in the future? 
Now, I want to stay with something you said, because you mentioned that the Arctic region is where we're seeing some of the most dramatic change in terms of the climate system. And there's a term called Arctic amplification that um, you and I are certainly familiar with. Explain, explain to the listeners of Weather Geeks what Arctic amplification is and why we're so concerned about the Arctic. Arctic amplification kind of sounds like it would be this really scientific word, but really all it means is that the Arctic is warming two to three, more than three times as fast as the global average temperature. Just last week, we heard on the news, you know, it was the second or first warmest year on record globally. Well, the Arctic is warming faster at a faster rate than that global average. And that's what Arctic amplification means itself. Now, there's lots of processes we could talk about that cause Arctic amplification, but essentially the word just means that it's warming faster than other regions. Yeah, let's, let, let's geek out. Let's do it. Let's, let's geek out on some of those causes. Now, I, I imagine, and you know, definitely there are others, but I imagine that one of the things at play is the ice albedo feedback, perhaps. Uh, so explain to our audience what that is, and then just uh, give us a sort of a sense of what some of the other processes are. Right. So one of the ones when I give a talk on Arctic climate change, I always talk about this thing called the ice albedo feedback. And essentially you have the Arctic, which is this bright white surface. So it's covered in sea ice. So you can think of that as your like white t-shirt on a hot summer day. And during the summer, when you have incoming sunlight, it hits that bright white surface, that ice. And some of that radiation gets reflected back into space, some of that heat. The problem is we're warming the Arctic, which melts the amount of ice cover in the Arctic. So now instead of ice, you have a really dark open ocean and that incoming sunlight and heat is now absorbed into the ocean instead of reflected back into space. And then that causes further warming in the Arctic. So we call this in climate science a positive feedback, which means it's acceleration of the warming in the Arctic. And that's one of the key drivers for Arctic amplification. But there's also other feedbacks. There's changes in the amount of moisture in the Arctic, which can cause changes in cloud cover. And there's so many different feedbacks in the Arctic. And I found during my grad school research, we've known Arctic amplification exists for decades in our earliest primitive climate models. But the processes contributing to Arctic amplification you know, the relative importance of them are still really interesting scientific questions. Yeah, now this is, you know, we're talking with Zach Lave, who is a, a climate scientist and Arctic expert on the Arctic report card, which we're going to dive right in. Now, Zach, I, I didn't get a sense uh, when I give, gave my introduction of what, where are you currently working? Yes, I just moved semi-recently, I guess. Time goes by fast. Uh, so I defended my PhD from in California in May, and then I moved to Colorado to start my postdoc in June. So I'm currently in Fort Collins at Colorado State. Okay, so right you're now. actually doing a postdoc at Colorado State. I wanted to make sure we got that in there because I, I didn't get a chance to mention that uh, in the initial intro. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? 
maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard. I'm talking with Dr. Zach Leib, who is an expert on Arctic climate and uh, recently began a postdoc at Colorado State University and is one of the best Twitter followers out there, hand down. Uh, in fact, I'm going to give you his Twitter handle right now. It's at Z Labe, Z-L-A-B-E. Uh, he tweets about Arctic climate all kinds of things. And one of the things you'll see him tweet about often is Arctic ice. Uh, and is that a loaded term? Because I know we talk about Arctic ice and, you know, it can be a little tricky in terms of how we talk about it. So uh, is, is Arctic ice itself a loaded term? Yes, I, I think so. Um, there's a lot of terms I see described about the Arctic. Sometimes I hear called a polar cap. Um, so just really what Arctic sea ice is, is it's just frozen ocean water. Um, when we hear things more like Greenland, that's actually an ice sheet. So that's, that's ice over top of land, which is Greenland. Um, so there are two sort of distinct types of ice, and, and you also have glaciers. So there's different terms to describe um, the ice. And the one, at least my research is focused a lot on, and the one we associate more with Arctic amplification itself is the sea ice, that frozen ocean water. And I, and I see you often posting trends uh, in sea ice. Uh, you know, and, and, and one of the things that I have often used in some of my own talks, and I don't know how accurate it is today, but one of the things that I've often pointed out is some of the earlier projections for sea ice cover uh, from some of the earliest projections, maybe 10, 20, 30 years ago, it seems that we're actually, things are even worse than some of those projections at times. And so that's one of those cases where I feel like as scientists, we try to be careful and not uh, be exaggerated in our warnings about some of these changes. But sea ice, to me at least, and I'm, I want get to get this from you, seems like one of those areas where things are worse than we even thought it was going to be in, in, in general. Of course, there's some caveats. So. Is that true? Um, right. So as I said, Arctic amplification appeared in the earliest of climate models. Back in the 70s, we, those climate models knew that the Arctic would warm faster than the rest of the planet. And then for sea ice, you know, there had been a focus on how fast is sea ice melting relative to what our climate models are predicting. And I, I kind of want to return to what I said really early about that community Earth system model which was that climate model that we run multiple times to understand variability in the climate system too. And I think in the more recent years, now we have a better understanding of how this natural variability or internal variability in the climate system can actually help to accelerate trends in sea ice faster than the global warming trend, but it can also help to decelerate and sort of slow down the trend relative to climate change. And I think it's very difficult as climate scientists to really disentangle the two. How much is the internal variability causing that trend to be faster than our climate models project? Um, so I think that's a really interesting research question. One a lot of people are thinking about how much of that trend, which is faster than some of the earlier projections, 
how much is that being contributed to some internal processes too? Yeah, I think this really affirms the fact that climate scientists like Zach definitely consider, as I mentioned earlier, the natural variability as well as the anthropogenic signals that are sitting on top of that. As I, as I, I guess I say a lot these days, grass grows naturally, but if you fertilize the soil, it still grows differently. So it, I, I just try to shatter this notion somehow that we as climate scientists don't understand that there is a natural variability occurring but certainly some anthropogenic signal as well. We, we, we get that as scientists, and I just want to make sure our listeners understand that because it's just a very common question that I receive as a scientist myself. Now, I want to pivot a little bit more to the Arctic, Arctic report card now. In general, you, know, you explained what it was. But how many scientists are involved? Are there other countries involved and so forth? Um, yeah, I just looking at my notes, I think it's over 100 scientists, but it's also... The report card is done by scientists from all sorts of institutions. You know, there are scientists working at the National Snow and Ice Data Center. There are scientists like me who work at universities, scientists who work for NASA. So it's all of these institutions coming together to try to, you know, understand the dramatic transformation of the Arctic, which makes it such this unique opportunity to document the changes. And I think, I think this was the fifth year anniversary of the Arctic Report Card. So it's, you know, you can watch for each year the transition of the Arctic and the processes that's happening. Yeah, and I want to give a shout out to one of my colleagues at the University of Georgia, Dr. Thomas Mode or Tom Mode, who does a lot of work on Greenland and contributed to this report as well. Um, one of the things that, you know, come to, comes to mind, it's, it's obvious to me because I spent a good deal of my career at NASA, um, but yeah, the Arctic is a pretty remote area. You know, how, how do scientists like you and Tom and others get information on changes in the Arctic? What are some of the tools? Yeah, that's a really important point. Um, satellites. Satellites are extremely important in understanding changes in the Arctic, um, which is why when scientists often talk about sea ice, they often say the trend since 1979. That's like the most familiar year in Arctic climate science. And that's because that was the start of the consistent satellite record of observations of sea ice on daily time scales, you know, measuring how much aerial extent of ice. So the satellite record is extremely important for understanding the changes. We also use models. We use models to understand changes in the Arctic um, for atmospheric processes, for measuring temperature and things like that. And we can validate those models with ground observations. There are towns and communities that are around surrounding the Arctic Ocean, and those relay important observations of data, like in northern Alaska. And then we can validate to make sure that our models that we're using for like the center of the Arctic are doing a pretty good job. Um, but I always stress we can always use more observations in the Arctic. Um, and lastly, you know, it's excursions into the Arctic. We're just finishing up something called Mosaic, was this unprecedented scientific expedition into the Arctic. <clears throat> Excuse me. And really documenting the changes as this boat, this icebreaker was locked into the ice for over a winter. And we are going to be hearing about the results from this expedition for years to come in understanding Arctic amplification. Yeah, I was actually following, I had a chance to read some of the blogs that some of the scientists on board that, that ship were, 
were reporting is that they were sort of literally anchored out there uh, in the middle of the Arctic. So it's really fascinating. Uh, I, I, I want to kind of now get into sort of the details of the report. What were some of the most alarming headlines from this version of the Arctic report card? And I know that there were many ranging from how fast the Arctic was warming to fires and all, all kinds of things. So give us kind of the, the top three or four headlines from this year's report. I guess one I, I would have to give is the sea ice. What was the extent of sea ice? So sea ice follows the seasonal cycle, which essentially means that sea ice normally grows in winter and normally melts in summer. And at the end of the summer, after all of that heat is built up, sea ice reaches its smallest extent. And this year was the second smallest Arctic sea ice extent ever in our satellite observations. And then climate scientists have actually made reconstructions of September Arctic sea ice going back, back into the 1800s. And we have pretty good evidence. It was at least, you know, the second lowest going back through at least 1850 and likely much longer than that. Um, so that was that's one of the main takeaways is how low the extent of sea ice was. Um, another takeaway, I guess one that I worked on was the ocean temperatures. We had sea surface temperatures, so that's the top layer of the ocean water. They were multiple degrees above average, particularly along the coast of Siberia. And I think for me, thinking about 2020 in the Arctic, the story is Siberia and, and that part of the Arctic Ocean that is borders the Siberian coastline. We just saw unprecedented heat persist over Siberia. And you may wonder why I'm saying heat in Siberia don't sound synonymous. But when I'm talking heat, it was essentially your temperatures that were up to 20 degrees above average over this part of a large part of Siberia. And it didn't last just for a day or a week. This went on for months in the Arctic this year. Um, and this had then downwind effects. So that allowed the ocean waters to warm uh, along the coast of Siberia. It allowed for an unprecedented loss of sea ice this summer along the coast of Siberia. It caused wildfires in Siberia, which then causes, you know, ash and things to accumulate in the surrounding environment. I could go on and on and listing all of these effects, but to me, the story is this extreme event in Siberia that just persisted all year long and we're trying to understand still, I think, why. Yeah, and I think it's a, you know, and you're a really good communicator at this, but I, I still struggle at times with people that just view these changes as about polar bears or something happening way up there in Siberia or somewhere. Uh, explain to people why and how these changes matter to those of us living in Georgia or Iowa or uh, Spain. I, I think people sometimes hear these things happening in the Arctic. I'm like, oh, that's fine. It's the, you know, the polar bears. They'll, they'll find somewhere else to go and find food. But it, these things are dramatically impacting all aspects of where we live in terms of our weather, perhaps sea level rise. Talk about those connections to what matters to those of us that don't live in the Arctic. Yeah, I guess more most broadly is that we talked about this ice albedo feedback in the Arctic is a really important part of the climate system. You know, typically it was this bright white surface that acted like our air conditioner for the Earth. 
uh, you know, helping to reflect some incoming heat back out into space. So now that we're seeing, you know, less ice and this causes our refrigerator to not be as cold, therefore affecting climate change globally, you know, contributing to further climate change. Something that I worked on, particularly in grad school, was, you know, does this dramatic warming of the Arctic, how does it affect weather in lower latitudes like you in Georgia? And I, you know, even though I spent years and years reading every scientific paper on this topic, I, I still think, you know, there's a lot of good research that's going, it's, it's complicated is I guess what I'm trying to say to connect um, weather in lower latitudes to the Arctic. Um, but when you have such a dramatic change happening, you know, at the top of our planet, you know, it, it's likely to affect weather in other places. And what makes it challenging and interesting for me as a scientist is, you know, we also have changes ongoing in other parts of the world, like in the tropics. So how, how does changes, for instance, in like near the equator, you know, how does that affect the weather versus how does the Arctic affect the weather? So it's really, you know, there's, there's this popular saying, what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. Um, and I, I think that's a good summary of the science and really trying to understand how is this Arctic climate change linked to possibly extreme weather in other parts of the world. Yeah, and I know there was some really controversial, at least in some eyes, research by colleagues like Jennifer Francis and others talked about the link between Arctic amplification and jet stream patterns and the amplitude of the jet stream, which would lead to more severe drought or, or more severe sort of large-scale storms on the, in the trough part of the jet stream. So really some interesting connections. I, one thing, while I have you as an Arctic expert on the show, I wanted to clarify something that confuses people that maybe don't think about this carefully. Sea level rise is certainly something that impacts people you know, all over the place, no matter what latitude they live at. Um, can you clarify this notion about what, you know, at least the melting part of sea level rise, because all sea level rise is not just related to melting, there's expansion because of the heat and sinking of the land and so forth, but ice melt is a part of it, but I think people may confuse whether it's the sea ice melting or glacier, glacial ice melting or the ice sheets. Can you uh, clarify that for people? Because I know it, I, I, it's something that often confuses people. Yeah, sure. So as I, we've talked about, we now know that sea ice is frozen ocean water, but then what about Greenland? So Greenland is an ice sheet, which means that you have ice that's freshwater on land. So Greenland is one of the major contributors to sea level rise. You have all this sort of frozen freshwater on top of Greenland that's melting and that is contributing to global sea level rise. The Antarctic, you know, is another region. Antarctica is a big ice sheet. And as we move forward into the 21st century and, you know, experience more melt that's projected in parts of Antarctica, that also contributes to sea level rise. You mentioned glaciers, so that's another case, I guess on a sort of, you could say, a smaller scale than the big Greenland ice sheet, but glaciers are an important contributor to sea level rise. They are, you know, frozen freshwater on top of, you know, mountains and landmass that are melting, contributing to meltwater runoff. And so sea ice, because it's, it's frozen ocean water, you could think of that just as an ice cube in your glass. You know, if you're sitting out on a hot summer day and your ice is melting in your glass, your glass is not going to overflow. 
um, due to the ice melting. So it's the same principles apply to sea ice. But there's sort of, you know, secondary connections to melting sea ice and global sea level rise and sort of like an intermediary where you have melting sea ice, which is contributing to more warming in the Arctic. Hence, you're getting more melt in Greenland, both coming from the atmosphere and the ocean. And I think in recent years, um, people who really study the Greenland ice sheet have really taken a focus on to that part of the ocean that's warming, which that warm water is sort of getting up against the ice sheet from the bottom, contributing to melt. So certainly these while sea ice doesn't directly contribute to sea level rise, it does indirectly through some of these climate feedbacks and processes. Yeah, that's a that's a great answer. Actually, I hadn't really thought about those indirect impacts of sea ice because I, I was hoping you to use the ice cube in the glass example to explain why that doesn't necessarily lead to a rise in sea level, but the indirect effects that you talked about are interesting. And I I even know this some work from talking with my colleague Tom Moda, um, Jason Box, and others have been looking at whether even some of these aerosols, black carbon aerosols, and others deposited on the ice sheets like Greenland raise the albedo and then perhaps lead to um, melting of some. I'm sorry, lower the albedo, if you will, um, and lead to perhaps the accelerated melting there. But I know that's still um, work in progress. But when we come back, I'm going to ask Zach Lay the big question. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And we are back on Weather Geeks. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with uh, Dr. Zach Lay, who recently is beginning a postdoc uh, at Colorado State University after receiving his PhD at Cal Irvine. The big question I'm going to ask you, all these changes that we're seeing in the Arctic and that you've reported, you and colleagues in the uh, Arctic report card, are they reversible or have we reached what we call in climate science a tipping point? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, I think the answer is going to depend maybe on who you talk to. It, it's an interesting scientific topic and certainly is something people are concerned about. Um, so a tipping point essentially means it's like an irreversible change in like a physical state is essentially the scientific way. Um, but I like to say, no, we're not locked into some of the most dire projections in the Arctic. So let's, let's use sea ice as an example. Sea ice is frozen ocean water. Um, we know that it's currently the trend is melting. And if we go at the current trends and rates, you know, we would expect our first ice-free Arctic summer sometime in the next few decades. But because it's, you know, frozen ocean water, if we, you know, sort of reduce the amount of greenhouse gas emissions and we don't experience some of the most dire climate projections, you can actually then, you know, the ice will then reform. It can be cold enough during the winter time to reform the ice. And people have done climate model experience where they have done that, where they have, you know, taken projections out later this century and actually then caused it to cool because of, you know, changes or climate change, you know, policies and re reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. And they find that the ice, you know, it does reform when you cool back. 
the atmosphere and the ocean temperatures. So I, I, I like to think, you know, optimistically that even though we're already seeing a dramatic transformation in the Arctic, which is definitely likely to continue in the short term, in the long term, I think we have an opportunity to really prevent some of the most dire projections of changes to changes to ice, temperature, permafrost, things like that. And that's where, you know, as a, trying to communicate the topic, I remain optimistic that we still have a chance to really prevent in most extreme scenarios. Yeah, and I, I think I agree with you as well. That's kind of where I kind of land as well. But let's play devil's advocate. And let's talk about a worst case scenario. We end up with a warm, green Arctic. What are the implications of a warming, greening Arctic? A lot. Um, I was just talking to a colleague about some of the unintended, you know, consequences or effects that we're already seeing in the Arctic. And I, I think one of them is really to ecosystems. How are, you know, animals, you know, on land in the ocean, how are they going to respond to a warmer, greener Arctic? And one of the interesting parts of the Arctic report card was seeing changes in bowhead whale migrations that were kind of counterintuitive to maybe what scientists who study that were expecting. So <clears throat> I think there's just a number, <clears throat> excuse me, I think there's just a number of effects and consequences from a warmer, greener Arctic that we just haven't even thought of yet because it's taking it's such a dramatic change into the landscape. Um, and I think we're, as we get more and more observations, better climate models, we're going to you know, have a much improved understanding of some of these consequences from, for instance, the worst case scenario. And this is, this is why as climate scientists, and I, I know during my time at NASA, we study the Earth as a system because there's so many interconnections between the various systems. I, I know I like to watch The Deadliest Catch, which is a show on Discovery Channel about the crabbing industry. And I recall a, a year, a season where because of the warming temperatures there, the biomass, the, the pupilio or Alaskan king crab were moving further out, I guess, to find uh, colder waters and so forth. So it was affecting the fishing industry and fisheries and so forth. And that in turn is one of those things that directly affects us because we eat crab and fish and salmon and all those types of things and cod. So, uh, you know, it's just sort of really interesting to sort of get people to sort of think beyond this sort of remote problem. These things are very much connected. Uh, really almost drawing to a close here. Um, but are there other, I, I gave your social media as, as at ZLade, your Twitter site, but are there other social media sites or places you'd like to point the listeners to where they can either follow you or get information on the report card or other really cool things like NSIDC and others? Yeah, um, so one really great thing I think is that there's a lot of people working together or separately to put graphics together to monitor changes in the Arctic. So if you're interested in following daily changes in Arctic sea ice. The National Snow and Ice Data Center has freely available graphics and data. You can make your own graphs if you'd like um, to track these changes in the Arctic. Um, I have some on my personal research website of graphics that I make to monitor these changes. So I'd say to listeners, you know, there are so, there are so many great resources available to track the dramatic transformation of the Arctic. And sometimes it's just hard to figure out those initially where those links are, but there's really a lot of work that's being done to 
make this all publicly available to keep this in the public conversation of what's going on. Yeah, and, I, and like I said, if you follow Zach on Twitter, he often shares some of this information. And I know NSIDC, that's National Snow, is it National Snow Data Ice Center or National uh, NSDIC or NSIDC? <laughs> I always get the acronym confused, but just Google something along those lines and I bet you find it. Just put the words National Snow Ice Data Center. I think that's it, actually. National that's Snow it. <laughs> NSIDC. Uh, and, and uh, you know, as I mentioned, my colleague Tom Moat, I know, produces some things for that website on Greenland as well, using satellite data. So lots of information out there. NASA has some really cool stuff on its uh, scientific visualization studio page and Earth Observatory page as well. Zach, thank you for joining us. But before we go, I have to do it. It's the Geek of the Week. This is the time of the podcast where we highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Edna Patterson. Edna is a retired high school science teacher and former NOAA meteorologist. Even from an early age, she knew she wanted to be a meteorologist. And as we know, that's when a lot of meteorologists realize their passion. One of her most memorable events was being on the phone with her daughter as she sheltered from an EF5 tornado in Hattiesburg, Mississippi in 2013. Wow. Oh, Edna, glad you're okay. Uh, we're so glad you made it through, Edna, and we want to thank you for your years of service. If you or someone you know would make a great Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages. Zach, thank you so much. I've been really wanting to talk to you on this podcast for a while, so I'm glad we were able to get you on. Thank you for coming on podcast. Yeah, thank you. This was great. Yeah. And thank you all for listening. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we'll see you next time. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.